We're going to launch into a series, Lives That Remind Us About God, Meeting Yourself in the Sacred Text. We'll go through Old Testament, New Testament characters. I thought we'd start with Abraham. God's call of Abraham starts off so many things in the Old Testament. Genesis 22, I'm not going to read the whole chapter. You know the story of Abraham being called by God to offer up his son Isaac. And you have to wonder, when you read the account... Why would God do that to Abraham? It seems like a pretty brutal test. Does it not? Take your son and kill him. And this is God that says this. And I think one of the reasons, this isn't in your notes. I think one of the reasons God does this with Abraham is Abraham has always been able to finagle his way through different situations. There are a few. But, you know, he's, he's with his wife, Sarah. He's afraid that this pagan king is going to want Sarah for part of his harem. And he's worried that he'll want Sarah so much that he'll just kill Abraham to get him out of the way. And so to prove that chivalry is not dead... Abraham says, when they come, tell them you're my sister. They'll leave me alone. That's not the only time Abraham did that, by the way. Abraham is a guy, not saying he wasn't called by God, but he always had a way of protecting himself. Covering his elbow. (laughs) He... Abraham has a way of doing that. God's going to do great things through Abraham in the forming of a nation. And and in order to do that, he's going to put Abraham in a situation where Abraham has no way out. You see what God's doing? There's no bargaining. He's going to be forced to absolutely trust God, which is fairly important because Paul is going to write centuries later and look back to Abraham as a model of faith and trust. And so Abraham is going to be put in this desperate situation where he has no oats. There's nothing else he can do. If he's going to obey God, he's he's just got to trust him. Not his beliefs, his trust. It's good to remember that in times of uh, turmoil and confusion, God tests our trust in him. And there's no possible way to do that as long as we're in situations where we can control the outcome of everything. So here's the conclusion. Let's do the conclusion at the start of the teaching. 
Our lives are only safe to the degree that we don't place our hope and joy in anything other than God. Only what is completely given over to God is safe. And you're going to see where Jesus basically says the same thing in different words. All right, let's launch into the study. Point number one. I kind of touched on it already. God tests those who profess faith in him. It's in the first two verses of that Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So that's it. I mean, the issue is pretty sharply drawn. The question is not merely whether Abraham will obey God. The, the real issue put on the table now is to what, to what extent does Abraham trust God? Abraham has experienced tests of faith before. In the Bible, I mentioned one. The Bible records several of his conniving sort of failures in situations where he didn't rely on God. So in this situation, there are no outs. He is forced to trust God completely. Once he commits himself, there's no lie, no trick to bring Isaac back from the grave for sure. And perhaps this is part of the reason God sets up these events for Abraham as he does. He's going to be forced to totally depend on God's power and promise rather than his own cleverness. His own cleverness is not going to solve this situation. The, the point of the passage really isn't the sacrifice of Isaac at all. We know God never intended to harm Isaac looking back. The real point is Abraham must finally offer himself to the Lord in faith. Point number two, I think it's important to remember this. Abraham doesn't know he's being tested. I mean, this is wonderful stuff for us to gather in a church on Sunday night and look at these lessons from Abraham. Abraham has no clue. That's what makes it a test of faith. You, you, you find yourself where where you're in a situation that doesn't make sense, where trusting the Lord hasn't worked out the way you had expected it to. There, there's your test of faith. It's very important to know that this entire account, you have to look at it from his perspective. He's totally convinced God has told him to slay his own son. And at the moment of truth, he doesn't know that there would be any way out. There's no prayer for escape. There's no hesitation. You've seen the Sunday school pictures on the flannel graph board when you were a kid, Abraham with his knife up in the air. At this time, God seems like Abraham's worst enemy. It's the way life appears. He has no understanding of why God is putting him through this. 
His firm commitment remains simply to do what he knows God has said. God will accomplish his promises to Abraham, even, even if he has to raise Isaac from the dead. You can see it in 22.5. That's what he says. Or Hebrews 11.19. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. But all of that's hindsight. The, the, the test of trust always requires some measure of confusion, ignorance, darkness, right in the middle of the process. If you're there, it doesn't mean God has abandoned you. It just means he hasn't shown you everything yet. And the reason he hasn't shown you everything yet is because if he, if he does that, then there's no need for faith. And your faith is what is precious to him. Three. No worship is complete until it involves sacrifice. Verses 2 to 6. He said, that's God, take your son, your only son, Isaac, I want to talk about that in a minute, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah, offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. There's a particular mountain, and I want to show you why that is. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut wood for the burnt offering. Can you imagine? He's chopping wood to offer his son. What's going through Abraham's brain? He cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. Verse 4, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar And then Abraham said to his young man, this is good, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Just this little glimmer of light. Just this little glimmer of light. Some hint of being spared. But, but, how, how, how long will God wait? He's got the wood. He's got the knife. He, come on. How long is this going to take? How far does he have to go? I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of his burnt offering, laid it on Isaac, his son. Hey, God. <laughs> you see what I'm doing here? You see how, how far this is going? laid it on Isaac, his son, took his hand, he took in his hand the fire and the knife. Both of them went together. We can see that God never intended a drop of Isaac's blood to be shed. But he, he did, he did intend to rip Abraham's choicest possession from the throne of his heart. That change God wanted to make. Once the sacrifice of Isaac is made in Abraham's heart, God is satisfied. And and here's the point. If Abraham is willing to offer God Isaac, he will never withhold anything else again. He will trust God. Abraham, the conniver, will be put in his place.
True worship is a lot of things. We have good worship in our church. But true worship isn't just singing songs. It's presenting what is closest to your heart to God. Worship, worship is not only enthroning God. Worship is, first of all, dethroning what's in our hearts. That's the painful part of worship. It's the costly part of worship. Jesus underscores this truth. I want to look at this text and and try and show you how it points out the very same truths. Luke 14, 25 to 33. Is that in your notes? Okay. Now, great crowds accompanied him. Great crowds. Jesus was really not impressed when great crowds just sort of thonged around him. Great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, this will thin out a crowd. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and even his own life, can't be my disciple. That's not a, that's not a winning message. 27, he continues, whoever does not bear his own cross. We, those words don't, we, we know what they mean, but they don't hit us the way they would hit a culture that watched people die on crosses. We don't. They would witness crucifixions, ugly, brutal crucifixions. And these words, these words would have been counterintuitive to them in a way that they aren't quite so much. We just think of, well, you have to just really love Jesus a lot. That's what we read. Whoever does not bear his own cross, come after me, cannot be my disciple. Now, when you get to 28 and you read these two illustrations, I'm going to do it. 28. For which of you desiring to build a tower, there's illustration one, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough money to complete it. Otherwise, when he's laid the foundation, not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. They're thinking, what kind of an idiot starts a project like this and doesn't stop and think, I can't just put a foundation in the ground. I've actually got to finish the project. You look ridiculous, Jesus says. Makes no sense. You can't do that. Illustration two. What king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000, twice as many soldiers. And if not, while the other's a great way off, he sends a delegation, delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, take that block that I just read. There's two illustrations. Building a tower, count the cost, count the cost. Confronting an enemy, count the cost. Count the cost. What is the cost those two parables are illustrating? Well, it's right in the context. Those two parables are meant to illustrate this high cost of following Jesus. And it's what we read in the first three verses. Great crowds accompanied him. He turned to them and said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, and his own life. He cannot be my disciple, okay? Now Jesus is going to say, count the cost when you hear words like that. And he gives two illustrations of it. But that's what he's talking about, the relationships in our lives. 
Does Jesus, let me ask you a question. Does Jesus want me to hate Rini? Look how beautiful she is sitting there. Here's my question. Does Jesus want me to hate her? How many say yes? How many say no? How many say, this is a trick, Pastor John, and I'm not falling for it? Why does Jesus use that language? And what about Abraham being told to kill his own son? Do you see the similarity here? And here's what, here's what Jesus knows. Jesus knows, and I'm, I'll use the illustration I started with, my love for my wife will be deeper if I love Jesus first. My love for her is protected by my primary love for Jesus. And her love for me is protected by her primary love for Jesus. Any love that isn't in second place is vulnerable. That's what Abraham has to learn with Isaac. The love has to be ultimate, supreme. It's not because God is some prima donna who says, ooh, look at me, I'm wonderful, I'm wonderful. Everybody love me, love me. Oh, please love me. I'm insecure unless everybody loves me. That's not it. The one who created us knows how we function and knows that when we worship him as Lord of all, every other relationship is purified and protected in its proper orbit. When anything is loved supremely other than the Lord, that becomes idolatry and eventually will always be self-destructive. And so there's wisdom in the cost. That's what I'm trying to say. This is the New Testament restatement of the lesson from Abraham and Isaac. Behold the offering of Isaac all over again. In our own lives, there must be the same actual demonstration of our willingness to renounce all money, time, relationships, affections, ambitions, schedules, In each area, what I offer God must clearly demonstrate that there isn't anything I would hold back, like Abraham and Isaac. It's the test Jesus put to the rich young ruler. It's in Mark 10. Same test. This comes up over and over again in Scripture. It's not a little theme. It's, it's a revolving door. It's, it's constantly being talked about. Mark 10, 17 to 21. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why, why, do, why do you call me good? No one is good except God. You're treating me like I'm just a good teacher. You know the commandments, Jesus says, do not murder, don't commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, with an element of, I think, satisfaction, I've kept all these from my youth. I haven't broken one of them. He's lying, but 
I've kept all these. I've kept all these. And I love 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. You lack one thing. Abraham, Isaac, keep it in your mind. Keep it in mind. The cost, relationships, must be premium for the other relationships to be safe. Keep that in mind. Now, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have because that's, that's where your love is right now. You've got to give that up and follow me. Right beliefs. Yes, I know that command, that command, that command, that command. I, I got you, Jesus. I keep those. That's correct orthodoxy. Jesus doesn't want to talk to him right now about his orthodoxy. He wants to talk to him about what he loves the most. It's what he always wants to talk to us about. You've got a lot of money, and it's incredibly important to you. Too important. You really can't follow me and be that attached to your wealth. Four. The offering on Mount Moriah, two, 2 and 14. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah, offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you, 14. So Abraham, this is after it's over, Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So as Abraham demonstrates his commitment in obedience at any cost, God provides the sacrifice. 13, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him. It's behind him. What makes him turn completely around and look in a different direction? Did he hear a noise? Is the Lord involved in this? It wasn't in his field of vision. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by the horns, and Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. The place where all this happened is significant because remember God said at the beginning, I'm going to show you a mountain. Didn't just say crawl up any hill you find. I'm going to show you a mountain, and there is where you're going to do this. And it's on that very mountain, 2 Chronicles 3.1. It's on that very mountain where Solomon would one day build the temple, which was the picture of God and his work through the sacrificial system. Abraham and Isaac do it on that mountain. And the lesson is eternally fixed in the whole old covenant system, at least, with the temple on that mountain, that God, through the ages, it wouldn't be by man's outward works that God would be bought off. God would provide the lamb himself, which finds its ultimate fulfillment in the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So this story keeps worship from becoming just empty and trite. We gain everything through that ram 
but it's the Lord, the Lord Jesus and the incarnation and his death on the cross. But it requires complete devotion, just as surely as it's completely free. Those aren't contradictory. So here's the conclusion. You and I can never earn God's favor by any sacrifice or offering that we make. God provides the lamb in which our ultimate trust must be placed. The cross is just stamped all over that Genesis 22 text. But having said that, I must not just proclaim but demonstrate my ultimate trust in Jesus over and over again. It will, it will come up, that test of faith where my ultimate hope and trust lies. And, and since the fall, since the fall, we've got to take whatever is precious in our hearts, all of us, since the fall, put it on our shoulders, bundle it up, and climb up Mount Moriah again and offer whatever it is unto the Lord in obedience and trust. Because that's where the grace is. <laughs>